All right, let's take the Word of God and turn to the book of Exodus and uh, chapter 7. So Exodus chapter 7. As you turn there in just a moment, Exodus chapter 7, you can keep uh, your hand in uh, just a page before in Exodus chapter 6. If you remember, we made a natural division at the end of Exodus chapter 6. There is uh, fear and doubt and trepidation about the future, but from the moment we begin in Exodus chapter 7, you find that from that moment on, Moses is not going to question the Lord. He's going to do exactly what the Lord said. And uh, the question in Exodus 6, verse 12, if you remember, Moses spake before the Lord, saying, Behold, the children of Israel have not hearkened unto me. How then shall Pharaoh hear me, who am of uncircumcised lips? And so Moses had faced opposition from the Pharaoh and rejection from the children of Israel. So he is in a bad place. Things are not looking good when uh, we read the narrative, at least for uh, Exodus chapter 2 through chapter 6. Uh, we also see that Moses and Aaron stood basically alone with the Lord. Uh, at the end of chapter 5 of Exodus, Pharaoh made the burden harder for the children of Israel. And then the children of Israel in turn criticized Moses and Aaron and basically says, you've given a sword in the hand of Pharaoh that he may slay us. In chapter 6, Moses goes to the children of Israel and tries to convince them that God will deliver them and they're not even paying attention to him. In, uh, notice in chapter 6, verse 1, Then the Lord said unto Moses, Now shalt thou see what I will do to Pharaoh? For with a strong hand shall he let them go, and with a strong hand shall he drive them out of his land. That verse is a good verse to think about what has happened thus far and where we are going in the book of Exodus. We have the benefit of knowing where this ends. But if we're in the middle of the situation, Notice three words in Exodus chapter 6, verse 1. The Bible said, what's the first word of verse 1 of chapter 6? Then. In other words, things are going well. Uh, things are not going well. Then the Lord said unto Moses, notice, what's the next word? Now shalt thou see what, what's the next word? I will do to Pharaoh. Think about it this way. Then... When Moses had reached the lowest point of self-confidence, that's when then appears. Then when the Lord sees what's going on, the rejection of Pharaoh, uh, the criticism of the children of Israel, then when he had reached the lowest point of self-confidence, the Bible says, Now shalt thou see, now since all human effort has been vain, I will do to Pharaoh. And so when they had reached the lowest point of self-confidence since all human effort had been put forth in vain, the self-existent, ever-glorious God will do something. And it seems to us as we study the Scriptures that often that happens where God has to bring men to the end of themselves so that they know in the moment that God is about to intervene, it's not their doing it's the Lord's doing. Now we come to uh, chapter 7 of Exodus, and if you remember our last study, Moses asked a question at the end of chapter 7, verse 30. Moses said before the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips, and 
How shall Pharaoh hearken unto me? The question is, how is this going to happen? And if you remember, the genealogy of Moses and Aaron is given to us in Exodus chapter 7. They were unlikely in their selection for service. Why? Because they were a cursed family. Remember, they came from the tribe of Levi, which was under a curse. Uh, When the land is given, Levi is going to be dispersed. Simeon is going to be swallowed up by the tribe of Judah. So things are not looking good, but God raises a man from the tribe of Levi, Moses and Aaron. Uh, They would also, Aaron and his sons after him, would be given the uh, priesthood. And um, we also see that they were a contrary and a common family. And so this is not the people that you would expect that God would use to bring the children out of Egyptian bondage. And so we noted that their selection for service was unlikely, but yet they were faithful in the task. And we drew some points From the idea of faithfulness, what is faithfulness? Let me remind you of the things that I point out. Faithfulness is not to be conflated with ability or acceptance. Moses, as far as what he says, he is unable to do those things. He's made all the excuses. And yet he is not even accepted by either Pharaoh or the children of Israel. And so faithfulness is not to be conflated with ability or acceptance. Faithfulness is also largely determined by faith. That uh, before they see God do anything, they have to take a step of faith. And we'll look at that this evening. We also noted last week that faithfulness is most, mostly evidenced in opposition. How do you know whether you're faithful or not when opposition comes? We also noted that faithfulness is an opportunity to make God known. And lastly, faithfulness is clearly measured by obedience. And we noted uh, what the Bible says right before we come to our text. Exodus 7, 7, And Moses was fourscore years old, and Aaron fourscore and three years old when they spake unto Pharaoh. And so God just lets us know they were older men. They weren't, uh, what do you say, spring chickens? Is, is that what you, okay. They were older, and God says, I'm going to use you in this age. And so don't let your age be an excuse for why you cannot serve the Lord. Now we come to our text. Notice Exodus chapter 7 verse 8. The Bible says, And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh shall speak unto you, saying, Show a miracle for, uh, show a miracle for you, then thou shalt say unto Aaron, Take thy rod, and cast it before Pharaoh, and it shall become a serpent. And Moses and Aaron went in unto Pharaoh, and they did so as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers. Now the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. For they cast down every man his rod, and they became serpents. But... Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods, and he hardened Pharaoh's heart, that he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. When we come here to this portion in the the Exodus narrative, so far, since Aaron and Moses have been Standing before Pharaoh, remember they had the first meeting in Exodus chapter 5. Now they come to this second meeting that in the first meeting there was no miracle. 
In the first miracle, in the first meeting, there was no demonstration of the power of God. But here, God is going to tell Moses and Aaron, the next time you go to Pharaoh, you're going to cast the rod and it's going to become a serpent. You're going to show this miracle. You're going to show the sign. And what we find here in Exodus chapter 7 is the beginning or the first demonstration of the power of God to Pharaoh. Now Moses, he has seen the power of God at the burning bush. Remember, he cast the rod, it became a serpent. He put his hand in his bosom and it became leprous. And, and then that was reversed. And so when they came to the children of Israel, they did uh, the same signs to show the people. And now they stand before Pharaoh and we see the power of God. I think it's interesting for us to note as we look at the progression in the book of Exodus that God did not demonstrate His power immediately before Pharaoh. It took some time. As a matter of fact, the first request was not even a permanent departure out of Egypt. It was a temporary three days journey into the wilderness to offer feasts and sacrifice unto the Lord. But in this meeting, the power of God is going to be demonstrated before the Pharaoh. And so I want to preach this evening on the power of God. Now I know as we look at our text that uh, we are not given the same assignment as Moses. That the power of God that God demonstrated during the time of Moses is not that which He calls upon us to do. In other words, when the Great Commission and the task of obedience is given to us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, uh, there is no direct command that we find while when you show up and start knocking on doors, bring a rod with you and cast the rod down and when uh, people see it will become a serpent, you'll convince them and then you can preach the gospel and just by seeing that power, they're going to be convinced we're not asked to do that. Now, there were signs and miracles in the book of Acts that we find that Jesus Christ prophesied. We see those happening in the book of Acts, but there's no direct command for us to do that, but yet we can learn those things and learn about the power of God and see how we can relay that to our lives today. And so let's talk about the power of God this evening that is manifested here in our text. First of all, the first thing we notice in our text is that God's power would be indispensable for deliverance. God's power would be indispensable for deliverance. So far as we've read in our uh, book of Exodus, Moses and Aaron would not be able to bring about deliverance by doing uh, various things. For example, as we look in the book of Exodus, Moses or Aaron would not be able to bring deliverance by physical strength. Now, we noted earlier that Moses had tried to do that early on in his life. When he was 40 years of age, he tried to bring about deliverance by physical strength. If you remember, when he was 40 years of age, he killed an Egyptian who was persecuting one of his brothers, a Hebrew. And so he killed the man. And remember, the Bible says he went out the next day to see what else he could do uh, to bring about that deliverance. And yet, when we find our place here in Exodus chapter 7, we know that Moses and Aaron will not bring deliverance by physical strength. He already failed at that. And neither will they bring deliverance by rallying the people around, uh, uh, or rallying the children of Israel against Pharaoh. Because the children of Israel are not listening. Now, although they were many in number, it's not going to happen by mounting a rebellion against the Pharaoh. And Moses and Aaron are not going to bring deliverance by 
convincing speech, right? Uh, remember Moses, when God says, I'm going to use you, you're going to speak to Pharaoh. Remember what Moses said, I'm not eloquent, I, I can't speak. You need to find somebody out who can speak better. And God made the point, I have made man's mouth, and I'm going to bring deliverance, not because you are eloquent, but because I want to bring deliverance. And so it's not going to, deliverance is not going to happen by convincing speech. And by the way, deliverance is not even going to happen so far as we've seen by even a reasonable request. Do you remember back in Exodus chapter 5, turn there just a page over to your left. You remember the first time that Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh? Exodus 5 verse 1. And afterward Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. Notice, there is no request for permanent departure. We just want to hold a feast in the wilderness. Notice verse 3. And they said, The God of the Hebrews hath met with us. Let us go, we pray thee, three days journey into the desert, and sacrifice unto the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with a sword. So notice, the first time they came to Pharaoh, they basically says, Could you let us go and offer a feast and a sacrifice unto the Lord? Because if we don't do that, God's going to judge us. Now that's a reasonable request. Now we might think that Pharaoh would be convinced that's reasonable. It's temporary, three days. We'll go out, we'll come back, and that's it. No, deliverance is not going to come by physical strength. It's not going to come by rallying or mounting a rebellion against the Pharaoh. It's not going to come by convincing speech. It's not even going to come by even any type of reasonable request. It's going to come... By the power of God. If you notice in Exodus chapter 6, you remember what he said to Moses. Moses was obviously dealing with opposition on every hand. And notice in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6, remember what the Lord said to Moses. He says, Wherefore, say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord. Notice, And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will rid you out of their bondage. And I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. And I will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you a God, and ye shall know that I am the Lord your God, which bringeth you out from under the burden of, burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you in unto the land, concerning the which I did swear to give it to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give it to you for an heritage. I am the Lord." Uh, and God says seven times, I will do this. And sandwiched in that, or I guess on each side he says, I am the Lord. I will do those seven things. And then he says, I am the Lord. And so Moses, the point is, God called Moses to do something, but God reminds Moses that it's not Moses that's going to deliver the children of Israel. It's going to be him. It's God. So God's power would be indispensable for deliverance. But secondly, what we learn in our text is that God's power would be demonstrated upon obedience. Let me say that again. God's power would be demonstrated upon obedience. The power of God here, as we read in our text... Now, we, we often focus, we say, okay, well, Moses and Aaron, they went into the Pharaoh and, and uh, the rod became a snake and they kind of proved to Pharaoh that, that they had the power of God behind them. But 
If you look at the narrative and read the text, the power was demonstrated only after the obedience of Moses and Aaron. You see, I believe that power, the power of God, would not have been demonstrated had Moses and Aaron not obeyed the Lord. And you say, to do what? I'm glad you asked. Let's look. Notice Exodus 7, verse 9. The Lord speaks to Aaron and Moses. He says, When Pharaoh shall speak unto you, saying, Show a miracle for you, then thou shalt say unto Aaron, Take thy rod and cast it before Pharaoh, and it shall become a serpent. So notice here the command. God says to Aaron and Moses, He says, Pharaoh's going to ask you for a sign, a miracle. And when he does, I want you to tell Aaron to take the rod and to cast it before Pharaoh. Now, we, we may look at that and we may think, uh, okay, well, uh, we're, we're anticipating the rod becoming a serpent, but what we find here is before the power of God is demonstrated, the obedience of Moses and Aaron is requested. Now, now this is very important because the power of God here would be demonstrated and is going to be demonstrated every single time, in every single case, upon the obedience of Moses and Aaron. In other words, the power of God comes only after the obedience has been shown. You see, Aaron, we think of Moses and Aaron, now I know sometimes the movies portray Moses. He's the one. No, Moses actually didn't do anything as far as the rod is concerned. I think for the first three plagues, it seems that his confidence in the Lord grew a little later on, and then he took charge, and he took the rod, and then he stretched the rod. But up to this point, it's going to be God telling Moses, and Moses telling Aaron what God wants him to do. And so what we find here is that we think about Moses and Aaron, we think, wow, look at what they did. But really, if you think about it, what did they do? Here is what Aaron did. I forgot. I didn't bring my rod. Actually, I, I, I had a member when I had the burning bush. I, I had a rod, and I brought the rod to the service. And I had it in my carport, and a child in the neighborhood, a, a, a kid in the neighborhood, stole my rod. And I know he did because I saw him walk off with it. Now, I didn't want to chase him down the street thinking, hey, that's my stick. I thought it looked a little strange. And so I said, he can, he can have the stick. That's fine. So I don't have the rod. But think about what Aaron did. Came before Pharaoh and he cast the rod down. That is all Aaron did. Now, I, I may think and say that is all Aaron did, but what is that? That's obedience. That's exactly what God told him to do. God told Moses, Moses, tell Aaron that when he gets before Pharaoh, tell him to cast the rod down. And when Aaron goes before the Pharaoh, he cast the rod down. So Aaron... The only thing he did was he cast the rod before Pharaoh. But God's power turned the rod into a serpent. Obedience, the power of God, was demonstrated upon the obedience of Moses and Aaron. And by the way, this seems to be a reoccurring example in the narrative of the Scriptures. Let me give you a few examples. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 17. Let's look at it and see if we can find this to be true uh, throughout the biblical record. And if we find this reoccurring, then it should tell us that there's a, there's a pattern there 
that God demonstrate His power upon the obedience of His people. In Exodus chapter 7, 17, excuse me, notice with me, Notice verse 8. Or, excuse me, verse 4. And Moses, now there was no water, and so they're complaining to Moses, and Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They be almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people, and take with thee of the elders of Israel and thy rod, wherewith thou smotest the river, Take in thine hand and go. Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Mesa and Meribah because of the chiding of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And so notice here the instruction for Moses was to what? Smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it. Now, could God cause water to come out of the rock without Moses smiting the rock? Well, obviously, yes. But God is asking Moses to smite the rock, and then upon his obedience, the water would come forth. And so we find here the same that we find early on, in the Exodus record. Turn with me to the book of Joshua, chapter 3. Joshua, chapter 3. So this is, after all, the uh, wilderness wanderings. And so, uh, Joshua, chapter 3. Notice with me, verse 14. And it came to pass, when the people removed from their tents to pass over Jordan... And the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people, and as they bear the ark, um, were coming to Jordan, and the feet of the priests that bear the ark were dipped in the brim of the of the water, for Jordan overfloweth all of his banks all the time of harvest, that the waters which came down from above stood and rose up upon an heap very far from the city Adam, uh, that is beside. Zaratan, and those that came down toward the sea of the plain, even the salt sea failed and were cut off, and the people passed over right against Jericho. And so here, what's the example? That the priests came, they were bearing the ark, and notice it was not that the waters were open, is that they put their feet in the water, and after they put their feet in the water, then the water is opened. Obedience precedes the power of God. You see, the priest, all they could do was walk in the water. But God's power parted the waters. Moses could only strike the rock, but God's power brought forth the water. Aaron, all he could do was cast the rod, but God's power turned the rod into a serpent. We could even think about the example in 2 Kings chapter 4 with the widow. Uh, let's turn there. Let's look at one more example. 2 Kings chapter 4. We have Elisha coming here to the widow. And so, chapter 4, notice, let's begin reading in verse 1. 
Now there cried a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophet of Elisha, saying, Thy servant my husband is dead, and thou knowest that thy servant did fear the Lord, and the creditor is come to take unto him my two sons to be bondmen. And Elisha said unto her, What shall I do for thee? Tell me, what, the, what hast thou in the house? And uh, she said, Now if you notice the pattern, you remember I brought out the example when, when God was speaking to Moses in the burning bush. Remember what he said? He says, uh, What is in thine hand? And Moses said, a rod. And God, I'll use what you have. Here, Elisha does the same thing with this woman. What do you have in your house? Now note, and she said, thine handmaid hath not anything in the house save a pot of oil. The only thing of value in the house is that pot of oil. Then he said, go borrow thee vessels abroad of all thy neighbors, even empty vessels, borrow not a few. And when thou art come in, thou shalt shut the door upon thee and upon thy sons, and shalt pour out into all those vessels, and thou shalt set aside that which is full. So she went from him, and shut the door upon her and upon her sons, who brought the vessels to her, and she poured out. And it came to pass, when the vessels were full, that she said unto her son, Bring me yet a vessel. And he said unto her, There is not a vessel more. And the oil stayed. You see, all the widow could do was pour out the oil. But God's power filled the vessels. Do you see the pattern? The power of God is demonstrated through the obedience, a simple obedience in what God says. I think sometimes I fear that we may want the evidence of God's power before we obey Him. And that's just not the way God works. So God's power would be demonstrated upon obedience. So first of all, God's power would be indispensable for deliverance. There is no other way for deliverance to come than by the power of God. God's power also would be demonstrated upon obedience. This is the channel that God uses to demonstrate His power, the obedience of His servant. And God does choose to use people. But thirdly, we know back in Exodus chapter 7 that God's power would also be the source of encouragement. Now, I'm assuming this in the text here. There's no verse that says, and they were encouraged as they left the place, but wouldn't you be encouraged? If you read, now I will talk about what the other Egyptian magicians did, but, but notice the text. Verse 10 of Exodus 7, Moses and Aaron went in unto Pharaoh, and they did so as the Lord had commanded, and Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers, now the magicians of, uh, the, of Egypt. They also did in like manner with their enchantments, for they cast down every man his rod, and they became serpents. And so, uh, you know, you, you imagine that moment when Aaron uh, cast down the rod and becomes a serpent. He's probably like, see? And then he brings all the magicians, and they all have, the Bible doesn't give a number, but there's many of them. And there's many rods and there's many serpents. And they do the magic there. And what we read after that is though that Aaron's rod swallowed up their rod. Now, you would leave that place encouraged. There's no doubt. You know, you know I mean, you, you would think that as you leave the places, God did it. I mean, God swallowed up all their serpents, and, and so God's power was evident. Now, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Uh, now, I think that his heart was hardened because 
the serpent from Aaron's rod ate all the other serpents from the Egyptian magicians. Uh, by the way, they were outnumbered. Now, when we read from ancient, uh, the ancient documents, we find that magic and sorcery in the land of Egypt was very prevalent in those days. Uh, even during the days of Joseph, it was something that the Egyptian culture lived with uh, quite a bit. Furthermore, it played also a significant role in the lives of the pharaohs. It's interesting that uh, this uh, miracle from God was duplicated by the magicians, the turning from rods to snakes. Um, we think about the next one, the turning uh, the water into blood. They tried to duplicate that. And then the bringing up the frogs. And they duplicated that as well. But then when it came to turning the dust into lies, they could not do that. And they said, that is the power of God. Now, the point is, when we read the narrative here, here is the explanation. Some people... Uh, Often when they come to the Word of God, they say, well, let's try to rationalize, to try to explain away what the Egyptians were doing. And so some people say, well, when the Egyptians came, when they turned their rods to snake, it was really an optical illusion. Okay, possible. Some people even say, they contend that the rods turning to snake was basically a sleight of hands. You know, like... Uh, illusionists do today and it's so it's not you, you see something you, you, your eyes are betraying you and so people say well they played some type of trick uh, some also continue says the turning from rods to snake was a a natural phenomenon where often the snakes could be trained and if you squeeze the snake's head in such a way he would, he would become all stiff and rigid for a time and then he would loosen back up again and so people gave that explanation now, I believe that the turning from rods to snakes by the Egyptians was a supernatural miracle performed by the evil power. Now, the reason why I say that is because of the language of the Bible. You read what the sorcerers of Pharaoh did, verse 11. Then Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers. Now, the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. For they cast down every man his rod, and they, the rods, became serpents. Now, we may stop at that. We may think, all right, they use some type of trickery, some type of illusion, some type of sleight of hands, or uh, really they kind of had trained the serpents. Training serpents does exist. But if you notice what the Bible says at the end of verse 12, but Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. So what that tells us, the language here tells us, that this was a supernatural miracle performed by an evil power, and that in the end, now by the way, if you think about the rod itself, the point is to show us is that a rod, right, cannot open, there's no mouth on a rod, the rod cannot, the piece of wood cannot open, and then swallowed up all the other pieces of wood. The point that is making is that the rod of Aaron became a real serpent, and the rods of the Egyptians also became real serpents, but Aaron's rod that became a real serpent swallowed up the rods of the Egyptians that also became real serpents. And by the way, the devil has power. He does have more power than God, but he does have some power. And so the point that we read here is that the rod of Aaron swallowed up their rods. So I believe this is just a, 
a demonstration of both the power of God, which is good, versus the power of the Satan, which is evil. And by the way, in the end, if you read the Revelation record, it is very clear that Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet have tremendous power. So this is not something that is foreign to the Bible. This is something that we understand. And so we just believe what the Bible says here, that God's power is greater and the power of the magicians and the sorcerers in Egypt. Amen. I'm glad somebody agrees. Amen. Now, the uh, Egyptians tried to duplicate several of the miracles. Finally, if you turn to chapter 8, verse 16, the Bible says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Say unto Aaron, Stretch out thy rod, and smite the dust of the land, and it, that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And they did so. For Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and smote the dust of the earth and it became lies in man and in beast. All the dust of the land became lies throughout all the land of Egypt and the magicians did so with their enchantments to bring forth lies, but they could not. So, so far, now this is uh, plague four. All the previous plagues they were able by some measure to duplicate, but this one they cannot and notice what they say. So there were lies upon man and upon beast, then the magician said unto Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. This is the power of God. It is beyond us. And Pharaoh's heart would be hardened, and he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. So as you leave here, Exodus chapter 7, the scene, no doubt, Moses and Aaron would be emboldened, would be encouraged. Why? Because the power of God has been demonstrated. Now, for us today, we do not have the same assignment as Moses does. But we do have an assignment that relies on the power of God. Do we not? We do have an assignment that relies on the power of God. And so I echo what we, we study in our text, that for us today, God's power is also indispensable. We need the power of God. We're not going to do God's work by physical strength, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We will not accomplish God's power by rallying people um, with a rebellion against the government. That's not how we do God's work. Uh, we're not going to uh, do the work of God by... Uh, having a convincing speech. As Paul said, he came not with uh, the wisdom of men. He, he came not with enticing words. He was not able to convince people because of how he kind of talked them into the gospel. He preached the gospel with the power of God. And we also know that the work of God is not going to be realized by even reasonable requests. And so, God's power for us today is indispensable. But also, I believe that God's power is going to be demonstrated upon our obedience. Now turn with me to the New Testament book of Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Paul has never been to the church at Rome, but he writes to them a letter encouraging them, strengthening them, desiring to go and see them. And notice what he writes to them in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, 
For it, the gospel of Christ, is the what? The power of God. The gospel of Christ, the Bible says, is the power of God, here it is, unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In uh, um, the narrative of the book of Romans, uh, even later in chapter 10, uh, he mentions about going out, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace. But he says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 17, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And so the gospel, the Bible explicitly states, is the power of God. And by the way, we've been given a command to preach the gospel to every creature. And the gospel that we carry with us, the Bible says, that is itself the power of God. So here's what we need to do. We need to obey the Lord in going with the gospel and delivering the gospel. But that takes obedience. In Romans chapter 10, what does he say? How shall they hear except someone tell them? How will somebody tell them except they be sent? The point is when the power of God is, uh, does a work in the lives of people, it happens by obedience to God. Uh, we find that both in the Old and the New Testament. Turn with me in Psalm 110. Psalm 110 in the Old Testament. Psalm 110, notice verse 1 and 2. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. So the Lord shall send, notice, the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Now, that is Jesus Christ. The rod of the strength of God is Jesus Christ and the work of, uh, of the cross of Calvary, the forgiveness of sins. That's the rod of God. That's the power of God. It's found in the person of Jesus Christ. In Isaiah, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. Again, prophesying about Messiah. Isaiah chapter 53. Notice verse 1. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Well, what's the arm of the Lord? It's the arm of power and strength. To who has it been revealed? It's been revealed to the people, but in whom? In Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ came. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect, sinless life to be the atonement for our sin. And we rejoice in that and we preach that. That is the gospel. And within the gospel is contained the power of God. And so as we preach, we're preaching what? The power of God. It has the ability to change the lives of people. To bring them from darkness to light. One more Old Testament reference in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 23. Notice with me verse 29. Uh, we, the children quoted that verse this morning uh, that they memorized uh, in Sunday school. What a wonderful verse. Notice. Is not my word like a fire? Now would you say fire is powerful? It has power. It can hurt you. It can consume. It can melt metal. 
It has power. It has it has energy. It is is not my word like a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces. That's the word of God. And so the word of God is like a fire. It consumes. It's like a hammer. It brings things in pieces. You say, but it's just words. But it's the power of God. And we as God's people have been instructed to uh, deliver the gospel. But that only happens when we are obedient to Him. If we fail to obey, then God's power cannot be demonstrated. How shall they hear without a preacher? In the New Testament, Paul, for example, as he wrote to the church at Corinth, notice what he wrote to them. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Turn there with me in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, notice verse 18. So he wrote uh, Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Here he says, 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the what? The power of God. <laughs> you know what God has done in your life. You know the power that stepped in and convinced you that you were a sinner on your way to hell and that in Christ He forgave your sin. That's the power of God that changed your mindset and your opinions and your philosophies in all of your life has been upended and turned upside down. Why? Because of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God. To the world it's foolishness, but to us which are believe who are saved, it's the power of God. He continues in verse 19. He says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Amen. The power of God. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now he is writing to the church at Thessalonica. If you remember Acts 17, when the church was founded, it was founded in persecution. Uh, the Jews hired lewd fellows of the baser sort... To cause an uproar in the city, they assaulted the house of Jason. Remember that? Well, Paul writes to that church, to those believers, and he writes this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. He says, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye receive the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. The word of God effectually works in those that believe. So we have to ask ourselves this question. When does the power of God cease to have an impact in the world? When we cease to preach the gospel. When does the power of God cease to have an effect in our lives? To work in us. When we cease to be obedient to Him and receptive to his word. And so our disobedience, our disobedience, 
does not take away the power of God, but it limits the power of God. You say, well, we can't do anything to limit God. Throughout the scriptures, we find that many instances where men refused to obey God, and God could not do many mighty works. Why? Because of man's disobedience. That should convict us of our responsibility. To obey the Lord because we have the power of God at our disposal. We need to proclaim it and we need to let it work. What's Hebrews 2, uh, 4.12 says? For the word of God is quick and what? Powerful. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's the word of God. It's quick, it's powerful. It does a work. So we are not in the case of Moses. But I believe the principles that we find here are true for us today. That God's power is indispensable. We should not seek to advance or to do God's work in our own strength, by our own wisdom, by our fancy speeches, by reasonable requests, by trying to rally people and to say, all right, let's, let's stir, let's get all stirred up. No, that's not how it happens. It happens by the power of God. It is indispensable. God's power is also demonstrated upon obedience. If we fail to obey, we fail to demonstrate to the world the power of God. Uh, we've all heard this before. Perhaps I've said this. I've heard many preachers say this. That there are two options today. Either God and the gospel has lost, lost its power. Or we are not preaching the gospel. Which is it? Now we know God's power has not ceased. And the gospel, uh, the power in the gospel is still true. You see, the issue is, is not God. The issue is often us. Now, if you notice here how God has worked in the life of Moses, He's brought Moses to the end of Himself. To where as He moves forward now in Exodus chapter 7, Moses is going to know with certainty, it's not what I did. I thought I could get it done with fancy speech. I thought I could get it done with my own strength. I thought I could get it done with rallying people. I thought I could get it done with reasonable requests. It just didn't happen. I needed the power of God. And he got to the end of himself. What did he say at the Exodus chapter 6? The people are not listening to me. Pharaoh's not listening to me. Nobody's listening. I can't do this. And God says, okay, you're ready. Now is the time to use you. Because it's not you, Moses. It's my power. In Exodus chapter 6, seven times he told Moses, I will do this. So as we think about the power of God, we find a pattern in the Bible when often people wanted power without obedience, it is always condemned. Always condemned. I think we all would admit that we want the power of God demonstrated. We desire that. But maybe God often has to bring us to the end of ourselves because sometimes God will do something and then we might take the credit for it. You know, sometimes we may have the attitude, 
well, what was God doing until I showed up? Well, that, that may be our spirit. That may be our attitude. Well, good thing I came along. Because God couldn't get anything done without me. And so may we recognize here that this deliverance is going to be brought about. Now, we're going to deal with every plague individually because every plague is an attack on an Egyptian god. And so we're going to deal. I think we need to take the time to deal with each one of those plagues and what each one of those gods represented to the Egyptians. But before we get into there, God lets us know and lets Moses know that this is all going to be done by the power of God. And if we today are going to do the power of God, although it's different than that, this is certainly a symbolism of redemption, of salvation, the exodus of Egypt. But we need to also recognize that the power of God is indispensable. And it is always preceded by obedience. And when we obey Him and we see God's power manifested, it is always a source of encouragement and strength for us.